Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 124, recorded on the 1st of July 2019. Today we will talk about the success of Monzo, about the news on the fight between Apple and Spotify, about investing in podcasts, the Europas Awards, and more. We have also prepared a pre-recorded interview with Klaus Mikko Nielsen, uh, the investment director at Nord. Ninja. I'm your host, Andre Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is it going? Hi, Andre. It's going well over here. And I noticed that last week at the Pirate Summit, you faced your nemesis last week. So the electric scooter. And it's great to see that you've lived to tell the tale. How did it go down? What were your impressions? And are you now a convert to the electric scooter lifestyle what are your thoughts i need to know all the details okay so let's start from the beginning so normally at a pirate summit uh in cologne i would just uh, walk uh, from the place where i'm staying to the uh, venue of the event uh, but this time I had like a small uh, hamstring injury and I was uh, walking really slowly. So what normally would have taken me like 20 minutes uh, looked more like 40 minutes that time. So I decided, okay, how about I just uh, try the electric scooter? And I mean, in Cologne, there's lots of them, like uh, loads and loads of uh, tears and uh, some limes and some cirques, which I had never seen before, actually. So I installed the tear application. Actually, I had it installed, I think, uh, before uh, because I did try it at some point earlier. So I was really, I, I really wanted to see like what uh, what it's uh, what it's like in uh, in another city and uh, whether it kind of makes sense. So my first impression and is that not all e-scooters are born equal. First of all, because I tried two different models, I didn't really note uh, the the actual models, but they were totally different and they felt very differently. And at this point, I have to do like a small uh, disclaimer. I am not per se against electric scooters, okay? <laughs> it might not sound like that, but I am not. I am against the electric scooter companies in most cases because I don't think that having uh, shared electric scooters is a great idea for most cities. So uh, the scooters themselves, one of them, the first one was actually unpredictable as hell. I was, uh, it, it really felt uh, quite dangerous, uh, especially going uh, down the hill, uh, like uh, some, uh, sometimes uh, the brakes were either going to, uh, either being too uh, strong or not strong enough. And uh, I could not really understand uh, uh, what it was depending on. So that, that one really, I got me scared. But the next day, next morning, I was uh, taking another one, and that was totally fine. So uh, as as long as far as the brakes go, that was absolutely okay and was totally predictable. I knew what would happen when I press uh, uh, the lever, and it did happen. So everything was okay. Now, so I do think that uh, we're all coming to the point when uh, the electric scooter companies will start building their own scooters because it makes economic sense, because they really want them to be more sturdy and live longer. So probably these problems will be solved. Next thing, though, it is actually expensive. 
Yeah. I didn't real I didn't realize it, but it's actually so like the ten minute uh, trip between Hansa Ring in Cologne and Odonian in Cologne, which is twenty minutes uh, again uh, walk. Uh, it, it it cost me like three euros, which I think is more uh, than I would have paid uh, with public transport, as as far as I remember. I mean. I'm I'm pretty sure that in Amsterdam uh, this same uh, this same distance would cost me uh, much less than that. So it's it's kind of luxury. I kind of thought that it was supposed to be like uh, uh, really cheaper uh, than uh, public transport, but apparently it's not. Did you wear a helmet? Uh, no, there were no helmets there, and actually, just a little bit before, like I think uh, last week, actually, I-, I talked about it that Germany uh, kind of green-lighted uh, scooters in general, so they finally kind of came up with some regulation, and uh, part of that regulation was that you do not have to wear a helmet. So uh, there were no helmets available, but I think in the app it still tell you that it's better to wear a, to, to, to wear a helmet. But um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the case. And yeah, at twenty kilometers per hour, sometimes it uh, feels a little bit unstable, especially with the small wheels. So sometimes uh, not having a helmet uh, felt uh, kind of uh, kind of dangerous. Then again, it's Cologne, uh, and I think it's even worse in Brussels, where you have lots of uh, cobblestones and stuff like that. In Cologne, you just have normal uh, normal roads, uh, and so they are generally uh, nice to take on with an electric scooter. So, I mean, my general conclusion on that, and uh, just to wrap uh, this part up and go to the stories, is that it kind of feels okay. I do generally like driving. I do like riding a bicycle. I do like driving a car. So uh, riding an electric scooter is a, uh, gives some good feelings. But uh, with the price of it and uh, the unpredictability sometimes of the vehicle itself, I'm not sure if this can become the future of transportation as it's uh, being built uh, by uh, some of the companies. Interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. The so rant is over. Now we can actually go to uh, go to the stories and interviews and everything that we have uh, prepared uh, for today's episode. And uh, to start things off, I wanted to give a brief update on uh, how things are going with the complaint uh, that Spotify filed against uh, Apple uh, in the European Union. Now, we discussed this uh, at uh, length earlier in the podcast, uh, and the main idea here is that Spotify is arguing that Apple uses its control over the App Store as an unfair advantage for its other services. In this case, we're talking about Apple Music. Uh, One of the main issues that Spotify uh, has described is that Apple takes a 30% fee from any in-app purchase or subscription payment done on its payment platform. And it's also ridiculously difficult for app developers to use any other payment platform uh, at all, since uh, Apple does not allow to put any links to third-party payment solutions in the apps, or even show in any way that it's possible to pay elsewhere other than Apple Payments. So... Apple now has reportedly filed a response to the complaint, uh, the first one really. Uh, It was reported by Der Spiegel, uh, the German news magazine, and uh, it says that uh, the response was delivered to Brussels at the end of May, so about a month ago, but we didn't really hear about it up until last week. Now, the main message uh, that Apple... Uh, reportedly is trying to get across uh, is that the numbers uh, Spotify used in its complaint are kind of blown out of proportion. So according to Apple, uh, it only takes a cut from the payments of some 680,000 users of Spotify out of 100 million 
premium users, and some of these premium users are uh, actually paying, uh, and some of them are still going through the one-month trial period. But still, we're talking about uh, less than less than one percent of you of uh, premium users that are paying through Apple and uh, from whom Apple is uh, taking the cut. Also, the cut itself isn't actually 30%. Uh, it is half of that. It's 15% uh, because the size of the fee actually drops to 15% after the first year of uh, paying. In the case of Spotify, so all the 680,000 users uh, in question, they have all been only paying since uh, between 2014 and 2016. Because in 2016, Spotify stopped using Apple's payment platform altogether, which means that no new customers have been uh, uh, paying through it over the last three years. So all the customers that are paying through uh, Apple's platform are actually uh, have been doing that for more than a year. Uh, hence uh, the 15% uh, cut rather than 30%. Now, there is no new information as well on how the investigation itself is going and uh, whether uh, there is any idea of uh, when it uh, could be concluded. So uh, we can just uh, share some takes on this. And my take here would be that if uh, if this is it, if this is what Apple has been able to come up with in its defense, I would say that it will soon get in trouble with the European Union because it doesn't really matter how many Spotify users are paying for the service via Apple's platform. It also doesn't matter whether Spotify itself pays the 30% cut or not. Lots of other companies are doing so right now. So I mean, it's, it's not just about Spotify after all. And the main points actually that uh, were made by Daniel Ek, the CEO of Spotify, they still do stand. Apple does make it hard to take payments outside of its walled garden of an ecosystem. It does take a big cut of in-app purchases, and it does have an unfair advantage in the music streaming on iOS and iPadOS. So my bet for now is that the commission will eventually find Apple and will make it change the way the App Store works. That's the idea for now. What do you think, Natalie? Well, I think it's an interesting kind of fight of kind of two behemoths duking it out over 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 this issue and uh what it does show is that spotify has some considerable leverage in that it is no longer using apple for payments and they're actually getting around that um for the past year uh, so i think you're right in that the commission will find apple eventually but um it's interesting to see when or where that that will play out yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if it took another year or two. Really, it's no, no, nobody's in a rush here, not at all. And it seems like both sides, neither of them, will back down from it either. So, um, true. We'll wait and see. Yeah, I fully agree. So, speaking of uh, big European companies, you wanted to talk about Monzo, right? Right. So. Last week, it was announced that Monzo, which is a London-based challenger bank, has raised a new Series F funding of £113 million. And this puts Monzo as Europe's fourth most valuable fintech company. And this round was led by a lot of different investors, including um, most notably led by Y Combinator Continuity, Latitude, General Catalyst, Stripe, Passion Capital, Thrive, Goodwater, Excel, and Orange Digital Ventures. And it's clear that a lot of investors wanted to get in, get in on this deal. And what was kind of unique about it, as Steve here reported in TechCrunch, was the inclusion of Latitude, which is a growth fund of early stage fund Local Globe. 
local globe had not backed monzo previously so it's speculated that this was one of the one of the companies in their anti-portfolio that they just needed to get a piece of so this round has brought monzo's valuation up to two billion pounds up from one billion pounds in october of last year so the company is growing really rapidly and now as i mentioned before it's the fourth most valuable fintech in europe behind transferwise oak north and it's just slightly behind the German Challenger Bank N26, which is valued at about 2.26 billion pounds, give or take. In the middle of June, Monzo began rolling out in the United States, and it actually launched the same week as a competitor Challenger Bank, Revolut, launched in Australia. So two companies that are pretty similar, but taking very different paths in terms of their global expansion. Monzo is also in the process of opening an office in Los Angeles, California, which, according to CEO Tom Blomfeld, was chosen because, quote, it isn't San Francisco, end quote. Users in the <laughs> USA are also able to join Monzo's waitlist. So it's clear that Monzo is a company that wants to do things a little bit differently. But what has made Monzo different from other challenger banks? Well, there's a lot of alternative banks out there, but Monzo is pretty unique for its high level of community engagement. And that's not to say that other challengers don't have their ardent fans. Revolut, of course, is one example. But upon its launch in 2015, Monzo customers chose the company's name and helped the company with a lot of early strategic decisions. To this day, the company has a very active forum where customers suggest new features and help test everything that the company does. And it's something that the company advertises prominently on their homepage, this level of community engagement and that customers are really the heart of their company. And some something else that's pretty notable about Monzo is how they've used crowdfunding and they've raised a considerable amount of money from crowdfunding rounds. And while a company could probably have solely raised funding through traditional investors, by raising crowdfunding rounds, they were able to help bring their community along on their journey. Choosing crowdfunding has also paid off for them. In their last raise via Crowdcube, 36,006 individual investors of the Monzo community invested 20 million pounds in Monzo in just two days, two hours, and 45 minutes. These investors often become huge advocates for the company, and you can see their engagement in the forums and online. Monzo is also very well known for hosting lots of events and engaging with their community at their offices in London. Many other fintech companies have followed in Monzo's footsteps when it comes to utilizing crowdfunding to bring their community along. Last week, the online investment managers, Nutmeg, smashed through their crowdfunding target in a couple of hours with an oversubscribed Series E round. Similarly, Avervest, a Lithuanian stock trading app, has crashed through their current crowdfunding round on Cedars, and they're currently oversubscribed by 230%. A similar challenger stockbroker named Free Trade actually crashed the UK-based crowdfunding website of Crowdcube earlier this year in May with their latest funding round. Free Trade was founded in 2015 and has largely been funded through crowdfunding since the beginning. So when it comes to fintech, Supporting customers and building the community appears to have really been an important part of Monzo's success. Without physical bank branches, the company has had to demonstrate their added value and customer service in different ways. And I wonder how this will pay, play out for them in the U.S., where fintech is somewhat more uneven than it is in Europe. 
Something such as Apple Pay and Google Pay are far more widespread in the United States. But other things that we take for granted in Europe, such as contactless payments, are a lot slower to have caught on here. Similarly, I don't think Monzo's slow rollout and waiting list for U.S. customers will be particularly well-received in the land of immediate gratification. But in any case, in many ways, Monzo is paving a lot of new ground for other European fintech companies, and it'll be exciting to see what happens here. Now, I have to, I have to say it. Uh, I think before, before, yeah, before I realized that you were taking the topic, I think I spent about half an hour writing about the same thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then I realized that you already that, that you already had it. Uh, all uh, put together, so I uh, switched uh, to to my thing since I'm generally more interested in Apple versus Spotify thing anyway. But while I was uh, reading about Monzo, I was thinking about uh, one thing: like, what is it that makes it so popular, and not just Monzo, but uh, in general the European challenger banks? I I just I I've, I went to the website. I read all the you know, all the terms and conditions and all the features and all the services. It's nothing really that you can't find in a normal bank. So why why is everybody so excited about this? Do you actually use anything yourself, Natalie? Do you have a card of one of these banks? I do. I have um, used. I have tried um, three of them. I tried um, N twenty six when it first came out in Germany. I've tried Revolut for a little while, and I also do have account with Monzo. And I think one of the things that Monzo is really good at is it's. A complete simplicity. Um, if you have a problem or issue, it's very quick um, with Monzo to actually speak to a human, whereas the others, um, it's not quite as easy. And also the app, everything is very transparent. So in terms of where you're spending, where your money's going, that is, is very intuitive. And I think that's partly down to the community engagement and getting a lot of feedback on all these different features. And something what's also really nice, Monzo was one of the first European challenger banks to have partner accounts. And that was a really big reason why um, my husband and I ended up going with Monzo when we moved to the UK and realized that the other challenger banks we were using in Germany um, wouldn't be quite um, as suitable. So since then, um, I think Revolut has also opened up a joint account. Um, and I don't know if N26 has, but I think they've really, it's clear with Monzo's, they've really kind of focused on the features and the customer experience in rather than trying to come up with exclusive metal cards or black cards or kind of fancy kind of extras. Now, if you don't have a metal card, you're not a good challenger bank for sure. That's, uh, <laughs> that's how it is in Europe now. <laughs> Well, something I, I I've learned from from one of um, our readers was that um, we, I had made some point, uh, kind of a offhand remark about the metal card, and they said, "Well, I had a metal card and it expired, or I I ended up my I ended my relationship with the bank, but I couldn't destroy it afterwards." <laughs> and it's like right. you know that's actually a really good point. <laughs> um, how do you destroy a metal card? Is this something that we um, so? That that was something that, that that was an interesting point that was made. That's a, that's if the Lord of the Rings was happening right now, we could have had a company of uh, certain creatures uh, walking towards a certain volcano to melt down a card. <laughs> Maybe we should have we should have one at the next pirate summit. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, we should think of that for sure. But also, it's interesting, for example, for Monzo. So I was also reading through uh, all the fees and all, and it says that, yeah, uh, it's uh, free to uh, use your card uh, abroad. Well, it's kind of half-truth if you dig a bit deeper, because... Like you, it is actually there are no fees if you pay by card. But usually, the like uh, most of the money that you lose, I think, uh, when you use your card abroad is when you uh, is when you withdraw cash. And there, it's still it's still not free. It's only free uh, for up to two hundred pounds per month. And then afterwards, you start paying a three percent a three percent fee, which is a lot, I have to say. And uh, it's, so, so basically, I, I don't. Th- I, it doesn't seem to me that uh, it is uh, uh, solving any particularly fundamental issues that I have uh, that I have with banks. But anyway, I'm, again, I, I think I think I'm just uh, getting into a rant uh, again about all these uh, startups not uh, doing uh, the right thing, which is not constructive. Well, maybe it's something that your banks in the Netherlands are particularly wonderful that you don't necessarily need a challenger bank for. But definitely getting on um, in banking in the UK, getting on banking in Ireland, getting on banking in Germany, um, all places that I've lived, it's not always been the most straightforward and not the easiest, especially if you are a non-national. So um, I yeah. think that's where place, things like Monzo um, and TransferWise, of course, have really been able to um, push the needle um, when it comes to um, really providing a great service to people that were tended to be underserved in the past. And speaking of TransferWise, they actually also just recently uh, launched their borderless uh, card in the US. Uh, so uh, that part of the world is also uh, getting uh, the, the competition is hitting uh, uh, quite a bit there. Right. And you know, it's something I've noticed um, being over here in the US for a little while now is that the advertising for TransferWise really is everywhere. So TransferWise advertising is on a lot of the US-based podcasts. You hear it um, really regularly, also getting it um, kind of as not pop-up ads, but ads on things like YouTube, ads on Twitter um, when you're in a US location. So they're really trying to let everyone know that they are now in the United States, which um, will be um, pretty interesting. They released a very interesting ad last week about kind of I am an immigrant, really kind of highlighting this um, kind of strength of diversity and kind of in their office and kind of of their experience. Um, I don't know how it played um, very well in the U.S. because this is a very hot button issue right now. Um, and um, but but it is um, very interesting how they're engaging with the contemporary dialogue here. Uh, do you watch any TV there at all? Because I think Monzo was supposed to have a uh, big TV campaign in the US recently. I wouldn't know. I have a TV here. I haven't turned it on <laughs> since I arrived. <laughs> well, maybe the, maybe that was the right decision anyway. <laughs> There's enough distractions over here. So um, no, haven't gotten into that. But it's something I'll definitely look for. I would rather be distracted by prairie dogs around me <laughs> than, than by the TV. That's true. I haven't seen a movie well, What's also interesting about Monzo is is that they still don't have the uh, the U.S. Uh, license, the banking license, so they are not allowed to lend money yet. And they think, but 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 again, I think the only way that they lend money is by this uh, overdraft facility that they have uh, in Europe, uh, where you basically pay, I think, fifty pence 
uh, 50 pence per day uh, for uh, for using it. So I don't think it's such a big deal. And I think even without it, we will be able to uh, see quite uh, quite good uh, whether it will uh, get a lot of traction uh, with the US uh, with the US customers. That's something really interesting. Yeah, I so I have not seen any any announcements or any kind of reporting since they launched in the US two weeks ago about kind of what the uptake has been. Um, but I'm very interested to see what happens there. Yeah, I think they will f- wait until what first one million users. Well, they said that that. could happen within months. Currently, they're at 2 million users, and they expect to be at their 3 million users in a few few months. Um, So we'll see. Then I hope hope we will see a country-by-country breakdown. Yeah, that would be great. Now, let us move on to the interview part of the podcast. And uh, uh, today we have one that I recorded at uh, Startup Extreme in Voss, Norway. And uh, it is uh, with uh, Klaus Mikke Nielsen, uh, the investment director at Nordic Ninja, connecting Japan and Finland. Let's listen to it together and uh, then we'll continue with events and recommendations. Hello, uh, this is Andrew Degler reporting today for tech.eu from Startup Extreme in Voss, Norway. And uh, now I have a chance to catch up with uh, Klaus Mikko Nilsson from Nordic Ninja. Hi, Klaus. Thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to talk today. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be on board. Nordic Ninja, that's probably one of the more entertaining names uh, of a uh, VC uh, firm. Uh, What is it about? Okay, well, uh, first of all, thanks. That's always good to hear. and, And it's Nice to have a name that sticks a little easier. But yeah, so um, Nordic Ninja VC, so uh, a venture capital fund, started, uh, founded in, in February uh, this year. And uh, the interesting twist, it's uh, uh, backed by Japanese resources. So we have a, a Nordic Baltic focused uh, fund of over 100 million euros mm-hmm. and uh, investing in tech. And we are uh, backed by the Japanese Honda, Panasonic, Omron, and the Japanese Bank for, for International Cooperation, JBIC. So, uh, yeah, a lot of Japanese interests now linked to, to Nordics in a very concrete way. Right. So before we switch to the fund itself and how it came together, how about yourself? How did you, uh, what did you do before uh, joining uh, this uh, initiative? Okay, great. Well, uh, let's say my, my startup path has been for the last 10 years. So I've been part of, of uh, Startup Acceleration in the city of Helsinki, uh, student entrepreneurship societies where during my studies and before that student entrepreneurship and family family business. So mm-hmm. that, that they've always been interested in entrepreneurship and, and building something concrete. But maybe the most concrete is that we, I was part of uh, building and co-founding the Finnish Business Angel Network, FIBAN, one of the largest angel networks in Europe, and uh, did that for, for seven years. And then the last two years did the Nordic level of the same angel network. So linking so-called angel dating uh, in the Nordic Baltic scene. That's, that's really interesting. So, okay, what did bring the Japanese corporates and the Japanese bank to the Nordics? Why did they choose Nordics and Baltics at all? Well, that, that's a good question. And, and uh, the, the specific one is that this is the first global VC fund in this structure. So it's uh, semi-unique for the Nordic culture in any way to have LPs that combine these kind of uh, large tech companies that have this kind of a, it's not a CVC, corporate venture fund. Mm-hmm. It's an independent VC with the independent decisions, but we, we get the support and help from these corporates. So we don't see too many of those structures in the Nordic. So, 
and and why it's done it's more or less that uh it has uh, governmental interest and and uh, to be frank uh, Japan the message has been as as we know the Japanese it's the third largest economy in the world but it's been for the the few decades it's been a bit more stagnated so the the message has now been from the top four from the, the political level the Abe regime and all that that there needs to be innovation uh, in other ways done than just on the corporates uh, and and startup level is seen as one of the those interesting part and what is uh, the challenge is that uh, startups and Japan they don't have very much of a synonym together so it's typically it's soft bank and right. and nothing below what comes to Japan as ecosystem so uh, that's why this is now one of the initiatives they have to actually spread out, link up with the startup level. And of course, from the Nordic point of view, we're really happy that that uh, from all the, the hubs in, in the world, they chose Nordics. And a few of the reasons were that the Nordic shares this very similar kind of demographics, both have an eldering uh, population, mm-hmm. and uh, but still at the same time, Nordics has been able to create and, and build a strong entrepreneurial sector and, and even produce... Yeah, uh, one fifth of all the new unicorns, more or less, in the sense. So it's been very, very. That's now very much of the interest in the in the Japanese level as well. That what is going on. So so as we're doing direct investment through the fund, we also linking up and and matching and the classic bridging. So mm-hmm. so what is the 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 the, the cooperation that can be done? So your own role is uh, the investment director. What does the investment director do? Yeah, so we, we are a team of five. I share uh, my office in Helsinki, Maria Zero One. So we have two Japanese guys who move with their families over to Helsinki. So very dedicated. The, the next decade, they're going to be part of the Nordic community and, and two guys in, in Tallinn, in Estonia. And uh, so we, my role for that is as we have uh, the investment director, it's more or less to scrape uh, deal flow and uh, uh, link those and, and and then again build the communication so it's it's as attractive as possible so uh, technically i'm selling those uh, pitches to our uh, investment team so uh, and as the structure is very light we're very lean in the sense that we have the investment committee is four persons in helsinki and tallinn and and uh, we do the investment decision on on the due diligence and then the investment so it's very light mm-hmm. and and hopefully we can structure that to support the the lean investment model and what's your thesis like, if there's any? So, so our our value is that that if there's uh, anything that has uh, Asia. So when you think of Asia, you hear cling and you hear think about the ninjas. So, so that's something we're trying our best to put Japan in the in the startup map as well. Uh, the interest is really there now, and now we have the the really exciting opportunity of actually linking up and building those concrete steps. But so, so uh, it's not a necessarity. We, we do inv- independent investments. So the, the thesis is more like we focus very much in the early stage to, uh, to match with the local investors in the Nordic Baltics. Mm-hmm. We are the newcomers. Uh, who are those uh, Japanese-related ni- ninjas? So we have to build trust. And, and, and the first step, of course, that is, is uh, the local investors. They have the portfolio and our portfolio is built to, to be very flexible to do co-investments. So we prefer that. Mm-hmm. We fit into the Nordic Baltic standard templates. So there are, for example, Finland is very actively using the series seed documents. And in the Scandinavia, it's very much on the startup tools. So, so these kind of a fit for the, to, 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 it's our job to fit the ecosystem here. And then again, find those interesting twisted that may are added value uh, visible in the sense of, of using the Japanese resources. 
Right. And how about uh, stages? Uh, what's your focus in that sense? Yeah, well, it's the Series A. Right. Uh, so the Nordic Series A. It's a little different than the US. But so in concrete, that's uh, investments from two to four million euros. That's the preferred level. Mm -hmm. uh, scale is from half a million up to 10 million. We do follow up investments. So in that sense, we're very classic VC. But uh, of course, the diversity element and, and the Japanese element that, that brings that a twist. So you're looking for startups that would, in your opinion, benefit from uh, entering uh, the Asian markets and Japanese market in particular. Well, well, yeah, it's a possibility. But then again, we we go. The primary interest is is how, how do the the numbers look like? What what we learned so far, of course, on as as personally, I'm a newcomer in the VC world as well. I, I'm a rookie in that sense. But we have a lot of discussion on on the. The, the 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 terms and then the financials so uh, what we look at that we discussed here at the startup extreme conference here today in 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 Voss in uh, Norway is that it's more about the debida how does it relate to the story told so so I, at least from my perspective it's very much energy goes on on digging into those financials and numbers and that's a special interest area of our our, our Japanese team so that, that's at least what we look at and any growth potential. So, of course, as, as many in this industry, we're looking for those rapidly growing companies. So uh, let's say Japan and Asia is, is an added bonus. So how many deals have you closed by now? Well, starting in February. So uh, publicly announced, we have three investments made so far and, and two are on the way. Uh, two first one were in, in, uh, uh, or the three first one was in, in two is Finland and, and one is in, in Estonia. So the Estonian one is, is, uh, Bolt, the old taxify. So, uh, the Estonian unicorn. Right. So, so we're happy to be part of that. And of course, as one of our managing partners is Marakiza, an active angel and, and, uh, and, and VC player from the Estonian Baltic sector. So, so good links from there. Uh, the, the two other investments is, is, uh, Mass Global, a Finnish company. That is, it's interesting, not that very visible in Finland in the same sense, but it's said that it's already the second most known Finnish company in Japan after Nokia. It's like, uh, so they have a product called WIM, which is a, a mobility app. So they have all the services on a monthly fee that you can transport from taxi to public transport. So that, that's, uh, the Japanese have been very, very keen on that service. So we were excited about that. And then thirdly, there is Flex Sound. They finished this kind of a new kind of a music and vibration sound sound system. So so that's uh, so from hardware and uh, software. And that comes to maybe the interesting that the, the added value as we have the the, the big corporates involved. So uh, we we can do them uh, get get the benchmark, get the feedback like uh, Flex Sound as the speakers. We we now invested it that that got very positive feedback from Honda and Panasonic. So that, of course, helps us with the investment thesis. So uh, from that sense, we're really glad to have these partners involved. Right. And, and maybe for the future, we really uh, soon something exciting from Sweden coming up and and initial one third from from uh, from uh, Finland. But uh, the goal is to build, of course, a strong Nordic Baltic uh, uh, portfolio. So that's why we today in Norway as well. And my colleague is in Denmark currently as well. So uh, you managed. Uh, you mentioned uh, this uh, building trust uh, between the within the ecosystem between you and the other investors. How does it work? What do you do for that? Yeah. Well, the the, the, the trust. Well, as the, the, this is risk investment. So uh, in, I, I work with the, on the angel level. Of course, in, on that level, trust is is almost everything. You the, have the guesstimates of the financials in much more higher level, and and on the angel level, that that really needs you have to believe in the vision and, and the goals. So on the VC level, of course, the, the trust comes from that, that we will add financials. 
but uh, it is still that, that I guess it's in my bubble, more or less the, the attitude that you, you become, you're part of the team of the startup. You really work on behalf and, and then, so you have the trust towards the entrepreneurs and then the other investors. So I guess it's uh, when the times get rough, that's when the trust is measured. So uh, we need to do our, our risk testments of uh, other investors as well. And, and so we try to be as open as possible. That's why we do the standard templates and, and more or less, uh, if uh, we're just happy to share more information and I learn from each other as well. The, the other VCs have really a lot to share and, 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 and I really like the mentality, especially like my strong background is from Finland. It's very educational. The investors on the angel level and on the VC level, they are really keen on sharing their best practices and, of course, those failures as well. So I'm, I'm happy about the current situation, at least in Finland, that, that there are uh, this kind of a storytelling and, and how to not to do it. So make up new mistakes, which, of course, are uh, uh, unable to, to be rid of. So so that, that's something I, I, I like very much. And, and hopefully we can see more of this kind of trust building with the other investor in the other countries. Right. Did you also familiarize yourself with the Japanese ecosystem? I've been, uh, as interesting, uh, my stepmom, she's Japanese. So uh, I was, uh, I, I'm the lucky position of combining two of my favorite cultures. So the Nordics and, and, and Japanese. So, uh, but, uh, so that, that's one of our being built and, and, and grown up with this kind of a Japanese cultural twist. So I knowing we have all of our image of a Japanese culture. But, uh, last February, I joined Slush in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So they held, uh, it's fascinating that uh, SoftBank was a very strong part of, of uh, attracting uh, Slush to, to, to go over to, to Tokyo. And uh, I can really sense like it's the same vibration as, as Slush was in Helsinki in 2013. Like this kind of, there's a huge interest. It's still like just 5,000 attendees more or less, but it, it seems to be really growing and there's a bigger interest. So it's uh, growing larger. So that that's something now we're hopefully taking the Nordic Baltic scene to to Japan and Tokyo to have a look on and and it's not so much exactly on on market expansion though Japan is the third largest economy it's still how to link up with those especially tech corporates it's a little tricky we know the cultural barriers but uh, the interest is there so now we just have to leverage in the sense of, of what uh, nuances will will help out of, on concrete cooperation right to me, it sometimes feels uh, that I write about new uh, VC funds being closed in the Nordics every other week, really. Is that something you feel as well? Uh, is the region, like, is, is it booming? Are there already too many VCs? Uh, what's uh, what's going on? Well, that, that, that's a good... Uh, we have the public sector in the Nordics. Of course, they've been very active. Uh, from the Finnish side, the, there's been a very strong on this kind of a... Uh, fund of fund structure. So small up to 20 million early stage seed funds. There are more of those now helping out. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, when the private, uh, the public sector has uh, drawn away from doing direct investments. But the, according to Nordic Council ministers and, and, and how we feel it, that there's the, the challenge is the scale up funding. So, uh, there are two big challenges for funding in the Nordics. It's, uh, for, for angels. It's, uh, typically, uh, an angel, a group investment is about 200,000 euros. That is doubled with the public sector. So we get up to half a million, more or less. That is semi-okay together in the Nordics. But uh, for international VCs, Berlin-based VCs, they typically like to look at cases that are at least a million. So there's the first gap. So half a million to a million, there's one gap, mm-hmm. uh, which is now being filled up with those early stage funds. But the, the main challenge, of course, is the scale of funding. Uh, we had uh, big players on the VC level that have been 
around earlier, but for example, our Nordic Ninja Fund, it's now the 101 million. So it's uh, one of the largest funds in, based in, in Finland, but uh, to be used in the Nordic Baltic scene. So, uh, so far, it, we had a, we'd be really thankful for all the great deal flow we received so far. So, uh, at least for all those considering these larger funds, uh, I would warmly recommend that there's still a demand. At least uh, there's a lot of questions and requests for funding. So hopefully we can fill up those expectations to to the the, the level that is requested. Right. Klaus, that's it for my questions. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today and uh, good luck uh, with uh, whatever you're going to do in the future. Thank you so much. Looking forward. Thanks. Uh, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu. The episode number 124 is still me, Andrew Degeler, and our research lead, Natalie Novik. Uh, Natalie, uh, can you talk about the events that will be happening in Europe soon, if there are any to talk about at all? Right. So this week, of course, being the first week of July, I can't believe it's July already, but many will be heading to Berlin for Tech Open Air that we talked about last week. But if we look forward in the July calendar, the events are getting a little bit lean over the summer, but you might want to check out Sonar Plus D, which is taking place from July 17th to 20th in Barcelona. So Sonar Plus D is an international congress that will be exploring, I'll quote, how creativity is changing our present and imagining new futures, end quote, in collaboration with researchers, innovators, and business leaders. This event has been around since 2013, and they'll be bringing together leading artists, creative technologists, musicians, filmmakers, designers, thinkers, scientists, entrepreneurs, makers, and hackers in an event that's geared to building connections across disciplines. Our founding editor, Robin Vouters, will be there, and it sounds like something that's really different and really special. So for all of our Spanish listeners and those who are in need of a Barcelona holiday, do check that out coming up in a few weeks' time. Yeah, that, that sounds quite cool. And uh, I heard uh, good things uh, about it uh, from Robin and uh, some other people from the startup community who go there. So yeah, if you're around, definitely check that one out. Now, let's move on to the recommendation part now. And uh, since you are listening to this, uh, I do think that I can make an assumption that you are generally interested in podcasts. So if I'm wrong, you will just have to suffer through the next 30 seconds. I'm sorry for that. But if you are indeed interested, uh, do make sure that you read the post and uh, uh, the accompanying slide deck by Andreessen Horowitz, which is titled Investing in the Podcast Ecosystem in 2019. So this one is very American-centric, uh, mind you, but still it does provide a much-needed comprehensive view of what's going on in the industry and what kind of growth uh, we are looking at here. As you could have guessed uh, the podcast are indeed growing uh, they're growing tremendously in the US and uh, lots of people are listening to them and most of the listeners actually consume more than six hours of content per week which is quite a bit the analysis is also looking at the financial side uh, of the podcasting business, obviously, since uh, it's coming from a VC firm. And uh, it uncovers a strong growth here as well in podcast advertising revenue. However, it is still orders of magnitude lower uh, than the media like the internet, uh, TV and radio. I think it's like two orders of magnitude lower than the internet and TV and uh, a one and a half lower than, uh, than radio. I wish we had something like this for Europe and I would love to to 
engage in a research project like this. So if you hear about anything like that, do ping me. But in the meantime, check this one out to stay in the know in case you're interested in podcasting and how it develops. Andre, do you know of any European VCs that are investing in the podcast ecosystem in Europe? It's a good question. Uh, do you remember of your head who led uh, uh, the round for a cast no i'm i don't let me check so uh, as far as i can see a cast uh, raised this 35 million dollar round in december 2018 and the tech crunch is right in that investors in the round include ap1 which manages some of the capital in Sweden's national income pension system, as well as a Swedbank Robur funds, uh, NY Technic, and Microcap. So mm, it's not it's not what I expected to see, really. So it's uh, none of the more prominent uh, European VC firms, I would say. And uh, ACAS, of course, is a Swedish company, so you're getting a lot yeah, of, of local investors there. So maybe some of the other... Um, it, it's also surprising that you haven't had some of the more European-wide firms investing in that round. Well, and of course, Spotify is investing really heavily in podcasting in general. We announced some of those investments on this podcast a couple weeks back. They're looking to invest over 1 billion euros this year in podcasting, but we haven't necessarily seen a lot of activity happening in european-centric podcasting companies yeah right we should have mentioned spotify first here of course because uh, i think that's the largest uh, european-based investor in the podcasting ecosystem at all interesting so it seems like it's a really big area of opportunity for european investors i think that might be a question we should be asking the vcs that we're talking to um try to find out a little bit more about that opportunity in that space. Now, Natalie, what was your uh, thing for today? Right. So last week was an event called the Europas, which is an award celebration for European tech that was founded a few years ago by Mike Butcher of TechCrunch. So it's been around for a little while. And the aim of this event is to celebrate what is happening in European technology and to highlight some of the great innovations being built in Europe. Um, if you know me, you'll know that I'm not really a fan of award ceremonies. Generally, many of them are for the wrong reasons. But this one, I don't have a problem with. Instead, I think it's a pretty valuable contribution to the ecosystem. And I think it's really important to shine a light on some of the great things that are happening, um, especially with the companies are all nominated by their communities. And something that we try to do here uh, to kind of highlight the great companies in Europe, but we have limited bandwidth, of course, and it really takes a village kind of getting behind all these great startups. So I've linked to a piece in the show notes from the event, which kind of recaps some of the highlights and all of the great companies that were nominated and who eventually won. And what you have is a list of really exciting innovations happening in Europe, lots of great companies being built here. And sometimes when it seems like the tech press is always covering stories on Silicon Valley or China, it's a good reminder to showcase what's actually happening in your own backyard. So I would encourage you to check that out. And many of the companies on the list, if you listen to our podcast, you'll recognize 
Some of my favorites are on there, including the Small Robot Company, which was one of the winners. Um, Agricool, of course, who I've shared on the podcast several times before. But lots on here that is also news to me. So it's a great chance to discover what might be the next best thing. And I appreciate that the Europa is, is around to highlight that for all of us. Have you actually been there at the Europas? No, I haven't. I was very close to going last year, but I didn't manage to. But maybe next time. Yeah, I think I went three years ago when I was uh, when I still had uh, the UK visa because <laughs> I, I I was living there and it was a great event. I uh, I really liked it and I would love to I would love to go again. So yeah, kudos to uh, the organizing team and uh, Mike and I. Uh, I haven't I haven't read uh, who won the award yet, so I will I will certainly check it out. Yeah, last week on Twitter, it seemed like everyone on my feed was at the Europas, and I was feeling really left out. But um, yeah, I, I think this is this piece is a really great recap of some of the winners and um, some of the companies that we should have our eyes on um, for the future. Natalie, we do miss you on this continent. You should be back soon. I will be back very soon. No worries. <laughs> great. That's a great moment to wrap it up for us, I guess, for today. This is it. Uh, I do hope you enjoyed listening to us today. And if you're not a subscriber yet, do subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening on iTunes, please do take a minute to leave us a review. And this will help others uh, find the show. Tell a friend or colleague for whom it would be relevant about the podcast. And do follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Such a pleasure to hear and see you. Thanks so much, Andre. Great to see you as well. And really glad that you survived your scooter adventure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one, but I hope they will not uh, come uh, to the Netherlands within the foreseeable future. <laughs> Although I do think there is one pilot going on in the city of Breda, but that's very far away from here, which I'm very happy about. Now, thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. <laughs>